0: I have a thought for you, and I think this thought is important because it will help you in explaining to patients uh, some things that happen to them that they don't always understand properly. And what I'm going to share with you is a cycle. It's like a circle. So it'll go full circle, and so the patient will insert themselves somewhere in the cycle with what they tell you, and then once they insert themselves in the cycle, you can then take them through the entire cycle and show them what's really happening and help to change their perspective of what's happening in their body and how it's not quite what they often think it is. So I'm just gonna pick a point to enter this cycle and I'll start explaining it to you and we'll go through each step individually and then we'll go back and we'll do the full cycle all at once so you can see how it works. So the first step in the cycle is the idea that a contracted muscle is a heavy muscle and I use that word heavy for a reason. When, if you've ever done sports, I'm sure you've heard um, in any kind of track and field event that if you're running, you need to be relaxed. And I remember when I was, I probably first heard that when I was in junior high and I thought, how do you run relaxed and powerful at the same time? It seems like a contradiction that's impossible to overcome. So how do you do these things? And so over time, I began to learn how to Move in a way that was relaxed and yet powerful at the same time. And you begin to understand why people tell you this is because it's something you have to acquire. It's not something you're going to do naturally. And so it's something that's out there. We kind of know it, but I hadn't really thought about it the way I was thinking about it this time until I thought about something that had to do with cycling. And I think the reason it works in cycling is because you've got uh, telemetry. And so you can objectively assess a change in performance at various times of your ride. And so, if you're going on a longer ride, say greater than 15 miles, you and you're on a flat road, you're gonna reach a point where you're just rolling along at a rhythm, a cadence, and you're not pushing yourself hard, but you feel that your energy is slowly, slowly draining, but you're just gonna keep cruising along like this. Well, what inevitably happens is that at some point in that process, you feel like your he- legs start to get very heavy and if you think about it you realize that the reason why they're heavy is because little by little you're starting to contract them and so now you're fighting against your own resistance and so your movements are restricted by your own contraction and so the solution is actually very simple you just focus on relaxing the muscle don't be so tense, and it's, you realize that the tenseness is not in any particular direction. It's just a general tenseness, and so if you lighten your legs, you will suddenly objectively notice that your cadence goes up, your power output goes up, you start to perform better, and you feel better at the same time. You're not being drained as much, and so it's, you start to realize that contracted muscles are heavy muscles, but they're also muscles that drain you of energy. And so that's going to be relevant here in a second we do this full cycle, is that to understand that heavy muscles are draining muscles as well. And so then the next step in the cycle is that heavy muscles are slow muscles, and we kind of already talked about that with the idea of running or even cycling. So a contracted muscle is a heavy muscle, a heavy muscle is a slow muscle, and so when you have a contracted muscle, you're not going to be able to move very quickly, and not just intentionally, such as with running or cycling or swimming or something like that, but even as a reactive defense mechanism. Uh, If you were even to sneeze, for example, you're going to notice the pain is going to be associated with whatever muscle is contracted and heavy and slow because it can't move quick enough to match the speed of that sneeze. or. Another example might just be um, some kind of instinctive reaction like a flinch or somebody scares you. Um, You feel like you're falling and you quickly try to recover. Something that happens on that subconscious level which happens at a much faster rate and then you do it and then suddenly discover that you're injured and I'm sure at some point you've seen patients or had patients who tell you that they injured themselves doing something along those lines and they don't know why they're injured. Um, And it's because they Performed a, a movement that was faster and exceeded their body's ability to move at that speed because something was already pre-contracted. And then we move to the third step, which is that a a uh, a slow muscle is an unadaptable muscle. So then, if we take it full circle, we've got a contracted muscle is a heavy muscle, a heavy muscle is a slow muscle and a slow muscle is an unadaptable muscle, which means if we go from beginning to end, like in algebra, if a, plus, if a equals B, and B equals C, then A equals C. So that means that a contracted muscle is an unadaptable muscle. And for many of us, that would seem obvious, but for many patients, it's not obvious. They don't actually understand that. And so their very next question would be, well, if that's true, then why is the muscle contracted? And I'm often amazed at how many people have this concept that tight muscles are something that just happened and that the magical solution is to stretch it. And they've never really thought about the fact that your body is defending itself. It's in a protective mechanism, um, protecting against movements that might injure a joint Also protecting against the fact that you will lose your balance and fall down if your center of gravity is off-center, so the body is defending itself. And by stretching it, what you've just told the body is that it's failing to do the thing it thinks is most important right now. And if it's failing to do that, what's it going to do? it's gonna try harder, it's gonna double down, it's gonna do more of it. And you'll have patients say, well, I stretched it, but then after that, it felt like it got tighter, so I stretched it again, and then it got tighter. And even as they're saying it, they don't hear that stretching is making it tighter, why are you still stretching it? And they don't understand a mechanism by which that stretching is actually making the problem worse because it's forcing elongation of a muscle that is neurologically contracted for the purpose of protection And yet, because it's in that contracted position, it has the perception of being heavy. It is a slow muscle and is not able to move quickly. Uh, It does not really have the power it would normally have because it's already contracted. There's no more power to be had. And it also is unadaptable. And so if anything comes along that surprises it, Uh, an example I often use with patients is the example of hitting a pothole. And so you're driving down the road, and all of a sudden, boom, you hit a pothole. If that quick movement triggers a headache, Triggers back pain, or something like that. That is an example of that movement was faster than what your body could adapt to because you already have a slow muscle. And so, the slowness of this is key because it seems to me that many patients are wrapped up in the muscles. They don't really understand the vertebra and they definitely don't understand the joints. In their mind, uh, I actually just was talking to somebody about this the other day and I think it kind of blew their mind as we talked about it that there are different types of disc herniations. Well, not to the average patient there are. To them, either their spine is fine, and their disc is fine, or their disc is probably herniated. And there's no gray area in between, and there's nothing beyond that, and those are just the two classifications. And that's all they know about it. They don't really understand biomechanics, they don't really understand the purpose of a, of a disc, what it's meant to do. Um, Even a funny one that you get as a Gonstead doctor sometimes is when you adjust in the chair or you palpate seated and patients will ask, well, why don't you lay me down like my last chiropractor? And it's very simple to explain that, well, the disc is a load-bearing structure, which means that when it fails, it fails in a load-bearing position. And if it fails in a load-bearing position, don't I want to test it and find out where its failure is while it's in a load-bearing position? Why would I wanna lay you down? It actually negates everything that I'm doing. And as I've thought about this a lot, I don't know that I would be so bold as to say it dogmatically this way, but I'm kind of quickly coming to the conclusion that prone palpation isn't just useless, but probably very misleading. And so it's, it's not something that you want to do if you actually want to be accurate and work on discs. Now, on the other hand, I guess if you're focused on facet joints, sure, do it in a prone position because I don't know that it's not really a, that much of a load-bearing joint anyway, so maybe that's fine. But if your intention is to correct disc, then it doesn't make much sense to be palpating in a laying down position any more than it makes sense to be x-raying. In a prone position, or even scoping in a prone position. And that's not something I've ever seen anybody really try to do, but if you think about it, why would you scope in a prone position? Because you've just unloaded the discs, most likely you've normalized the nervous system to some degree just because you've taken the load off of it. And so putting them back into that load bearing position is the one most likely to draw out where the problem is and to give you the most accurate assessment of where the problem is. So I think it's important to understand these concepts, see how they're interrelated, and then be able to feed them back to the patient. Because they don't need a complete dissertation on all these things that I've just said. But somewhere in all of this is some, something for each one. And you just kind of pluck it out and you give it to them. And you don't feed them too much. You just give them some just so they can understand a little bit. And so uh, that's that's kind of my purpose for talking about the muscles. Uh, we've had, We did a whole episode on muscles previously. And The the thing about the muscles is that they are the entry point for most patients. Uh, A lot of patients when they come in and they complain about pain, they complain about pain, they complain about pain in a muscle. And for a chiropractor who wants to fix subluxations, improve health, and practice chiropractic in a biomechanics neurology model, that is a frustrating point for them to enter themselves because you're now going to have to take their dialogue and convert it over to your dialogue and explain to them how muscles don't just randomly tighten up, they get a, they get told a message from the nervous system, so we can start to tie in. And muscles aren't told to tighten up for no reason, they're told to tighten up in order to protect biomechanics function. We need to be balanced, we need our plumb line to be straight down, and so we have to have these curves and bends in order to maintain a balanced position that allows upright posture, and so that's the That's the basic crux of why these things are important and why this cycle is important. Because if a patient has ever exercised before, even if they're a weightlifter, actually, I find the weightlifters and the CrossFit people, this is probably most important for them. They don't understand why this muscle is suddenly tight or why I suddenly have this pain. and uh, Why is my TFL tight? Well, it's probably not your TFL. It's probably your L5 nerve. Why is my hamstring tight? Well, it's probably your S2 nerve. Like They don't understand... They just assume it has to be a muscle and that's why it's so important to be able to take that muscle conversation and turn it into a true chiropractic conversation. Okay, so I want to give you a practical example of how this works and I want to choose something that's a little more off the wall. That way we can talk about something that's a little bit less frequent, less common. Uh, Something we probably haven't talked much about before. So for this example, I'm going to use the shoulder blade, the scapula. And so um, sometimes the scapula will misalign. Uh, It usually moves laterally, or we would probably call it an EX scapula. And I, I wasn't going to go here, but let's just do it. You might wonder, and patients will ask, where does a misaligned scapula come from? And so I... Have you, you've ever heard the joke about how 85% of all statistics are made up and of course I change that number every time I say that one um, I, the made-up statistics that I have for shoulder blades that I tell people and I tell them this is my made-up statistics based on what I've seen uh, I tell them that 80% of shoulder blades are misaligned while you sleep 15% are misaligned by people working overhead and 5% are misaligned by people falling and landing on an outstretched arm and messing up their shoulder blade. So there's my 100%. The problem is there's a fourth reason, and I don't know which one of those other things to steal percentages from in order to make room for my other reason. And the other problem I have with my other reason is that I don't actually know or have much of any idea how frequently this is the cause of a a scapula problem. Uh, And I'll tell you, You'll see why in a second. Um, But my other reason for why people have misaligned scapulas uh, actually has to do with certain diversified adjustments that are performed on them prior to me seeing them. Um, The one that I think is most likely to do it, you've probably seen it, is they have the patient lay prone and then they turn their head, they stand at the head of the table and they turn the head one way and then they push down and they will claim that they're moving the first rib, or maybe even the T1 vertebra itself. Uh, The reality is that neither of those two things move in that direction, and so I believe, my opinion is that in most cases, the gigantic cavitation that they hear that convinces them they've done their job is actually the sound of the shoulder blade subluxating. Uh, It's got a bursa underneath it that makes a beautifully loud sound uh, when you do that, and so, they and the patient are probably convinced that they did a great adjustment. But uh, in my experience, when people have had that done, they almost always have a shoulder blade out. Uh, The other one that can do it, I think anteriorities a lot of times do it as well. Uh, But then uh, it's also been my experience that, I noticed this probably within my first couple years of practice, that any patient that had previously seen a diversified doctor was at least twice as hard to adjust as somebody who was coming to see me and had never seen a chiropractor before. Uh, many times, they're like three times as hard because their body is more guarded. The subluxations are more fixated because they've had more force go into them. And it's just a harder thing to fix. So I wasn't going to go there, but there it is. So take that with a grain of salt. But that's my, that's my operating thesis, and I operate on it all the time. And that is generally what I have seen when it comes to shoulder blades and so, if we take the example of the shoulder blade, and we'll, take, we'll assume it's gone laterally, it's in an EX position, uh, we'll even say it went inferior. That's probably the best example. So, it's, it's moved laterally, and it's gone inferior. In order to brace and stabilize that, that bone, the body is going to use the scalene muscles, usually the anterior scalenes, but it's going to use the scalene muscles. And they hook into the side of C3, C2. They're going to, they're going to latch on, and it's gonna use them for stabilization. Now that it's done that, what is the perception that the patient is going to get? Well, the first perception they're gonna get is the feeling of heaviness. That's why we covered that one first. And the patient's gonna say, my head feels heavy, my neck feels stiff. And it's become almost comical to me that of all the patients out there, the ones who are most likely to tell you that they want you to pull on their head you know, do like a little y strappy kind of thing. They're the ones that have shoulder blade subluxations because that tight muscle in there gives them the perception of heaviness and compression. And they feel like if I could just elongate it, it'd be so much better. And yet it's a very simple thing to explain to them. Uh, but there's another another side of this. So here's another area I wasn't going to go into, but let's go there. Why not? Well, I'm in that mood, so let's just go there. There is... Um, so in, in the Bible, there's a section where God says that he's given people over to a reprobate mind. Well, that word reprobate is not one that we commonly use very often, and it's a very interesting concept. If you ask somebody what reprobate means, they probably think that it means demented or perverted or maybe even dysfunctional. It doesn't actually mean that. What reprobate means is that somebody is unable to see the truth, even when the truth is is right in front of them. And I think that that's a very valuable word in today's society. The idea that people cannot see the truth even when it's right in front of them. And I've been explaining chiropractic stuff to people for 23 years, 24 years, whatever it's been. And it's never been so hard as it is now. And presumably I'm better at it now than I was 10 or 15 years ago, and yet it's harder now. And I began to wonder to myself, is it possible that people have become chiropractically reprobate, where they are unable to see the truth even when we show it to them? And I thought, well, if that's true, why would that be true? Because it's not a function really of people being dumber. It's actually more of an exaggeration of the Dunning-Kruger effect. So what most likely is happening is it's the effect of YouTube and things of that nature that they actually feel like if they watch a couple YouTube channels, they now know as much as any chiropractor. They now understand the whole profession. Or I've often, throughout my career, been amazed at people who come in and tell me, well, I've been seeing chiropractors longer than you've been alive. Well, great. I've I've been eating food my whole life. That doesn't make me a chef they don't seem to understand that being a consumer does not make you a producer so there's this weird sort of arrogance that somehow there's a knowledge base that doesn't actually exist and so i begin to wonder are there patients that are going to be borderline if not completely incapable of understanding and to me that's kind of relevant because if we're trying so hard to be good communicators and I know, especially for young doctors, when patients don't get it, they think, man, I'm communicating wrong. How can I communicate this better? I've kind of reached a point for the first time where I would tell you, it may not be you. It might just be one of those things where they can't understand and they're not gonna understand. And um, and I don't think that that's necessarily true everywhere, but I think there are probably pockets in certain places where it's more true than others. Uh, but it's something that I've been keeping an eye on because I think Things are changing, so that was the, uh, <laughs> there's the direction I didn't wanna go, but there we go again. So, let me get back on course. The The heaviness of the head is a perception, but not necessarily a reality. Actually, it's not a reality, because did their head actually change weight? No, it did not. Their head cannot change weight, not unless they put on a really heavy hat. Uh, their head's not gonna change weight, but they have the perception that it has. And so that's something that most people, I think, can probably understand just by simply telling them your head did not change weight. What happened was the positioning did. That threw you off off that perfect balancing point. Now muscles have to do their work, and when muscles contract, they're pulling your head downward towards the the bone they're anchored to. uh, And so that gives you the perception that it's heavier. In the case of the shoulder blade, what's happening is it's doing that muscle flip that I talked about in a previous episode where it flips and so now what it's doing is it's anchoring the neck in order to control the shoulder blade so that it doesn't get worse. But now, because it's made the neck an anchor, the neck has lost mobility. And again, that makes it feel heavy. Now, because it's heavy, you know from seeing anybody who's come in with what I always refer to as Frankenstein neck, when they come in with their Frankenstein neck, that's a, it's a very slow. So you can see that side of it as well. Uh, Usually that shows up when they tell you that they try to look over their shoulder to back out in their car, and when they go to look over their shoulder, they realize, oh, I can't look that fast, I can't move that quick, and then they're turning their whole body because now the thing's freaked out because they did it too quickly, because we just instinctively look over our shoulders, we don't really stop to think about it before we do it. So there you get that slowness of the muscle. So it's a heavy muscle, it's a slow muscle, and then we run into the area of it's an unadaptable muscle. So they may not have a headache yet, but they may be very much on the verge of it because it only takes the tiniest little insult or assault beyond what they already have, and it's gonna set off that whole mechanism, and they're gonna end up with those other pieces as well. And the truly miraculous thing about this, I would say actually it's the miraculous thing about chiropractic in total is that when you know which bone is causing the problem and you know where it's gone and you put it back to where it belongs and you put it there perfectly, these problems disappear in an instant. And a shoulder blade is a great example of that. You set a shoulder blade right across that bursa and the the, the neck just totally goes that neck problem goes away, that heaviness, they'll tell you before they've even stood up, the heaviness is gone, I can move my neck again, it doesn't feel heavy, it doesn't feel slow, it doesn't feel unadaptable, and so they get all those parts back, and so that becomes a, a key to, to making this correction, is being able to explain to them why this happened and why they had these perceptions, because the reason, I guess, at the core of why I bring this up is that... Most of the time, if you have somebody with a shoulder blade subluxation, they are going to tell you that they want their upper cervicals adjusted because they feel that heaviness and they feel like, oh, it's up here at the top of my neck. This happens all the time. And they're like, it's up here. It's definitely up here. In fact, what really is mind-boggling to me is when you adjust the shoulder blade, the whole thing goes away instantly. And then they go, are you still going to do the top of my neck? Well, no, (laughs) because the problem was never at the top of your neck. And that's where we get into that whole challenging, can you really understand this kind of deal? But that's what they'll do is they want you to do the top because they're so set in their head that where they feel the pain, it must be where the problem is. And we know that's not true. And the only way I think that we can fully explain to them how the problem is elsewhere and why they feel it in one place, but it's occurring somewhere else is if we use the fact of the muscles to draw a connection between what they believe to be happening and what we know to be true. And I'm not gonna lie, it seems like that's getting more difficult day by day, but that's, that's the fight we signed up for. So that's where we go with it. So I hope that helps you to have some ideas of how to communicate these ideas, but also in your own head, just to think about it. Because one thing I've thought about lately is that we often take a very complex view of chiropractic and we try to simplify it for our patients. And yet the truth of the matter is that some patients need it really simple and some patients actually need it to be complex. I'm sure you've had some of those. They want to know more. They need to know more. They want to know the details. We, of course, need to have the complex version because you can always simplify from the complex. Somewhere in all this, we need to have a solid sound model in our head of the complex that we can base our own simplicities on, but also that we can use to share the complexities with the people who need the complexities. I found that to be one of the unspoken parts of the job that, especially as a student, I had no idea that was something I was going to have to do. But I find the people who are most successful in what they do and in what they communicate, they all have that. They have a a sound model in their head of how things work and they can explain it on a simple level or a complex level. And So hopefully that helps you to build a little bit of the complexity and to start thinking about some of these things and how they're connected in a little bit more complex kind of way.